On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about the teacher action, teacher union, government action. Is part of this gender-based? Is part of the reason why the government is driving a hard bargain with the teachers because the teachers are largely women? That's been suggested. We'll talk about it. We're also going to chat about licensing the Canadian media. There is a proposal. There's a. It's part of a, a list of ideas from a panel that was coming up with ways to modernize our broadcast and online sector in this country that we should license Canadian media outlets so that the government has a say in who gets to have a license. Good idea. You know where I'm going to stand on that one. And Don Robertson also is going to join us and talk about, I don't know, rivalries and hockey and Jennifer Lopez. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You know what's been going on. There's been plenty of coverage. There's been plenty of discussion. There's been lots of people weighing in. And you know what? For this next few minutes, I, you are, I'm not going to challenge you on your view of who's right, who's wrong, government, teachers, unions, whatever. We're going to leave that part alone for a moment. You can hold whatever view it is you have, and that's totally fine. You can think it's the government's fault. You can think it's the teacher's fault. You can think it's the union's fault. You can think it's whoever's fault. I don't care. Right now, that's a discussion for another day. That'll be going on. But there is a piece at thespec.com right now, a column, an opinion piece, that raises what I thought was a very interesting side note to this whole thing. And that one is, here's the headline, teachers are victims of patriarchal attitudes. And the subhead says, the education workforce is predominantly female and undervalued for simply that reason alone. So I want to hear from you as we talk about this. Is the government, is the Ontario government going hard after the teachers, going hard after teachers' unions because the workers are primarily women? Is this, and even if it's not a conscious decision, is it a subconscious decision if you want to go down that road? Are they trying to extract concessions out of teachers and teachers' unions because the labor force is primarily female? Because that's the, that's the belief. And look, this is not the first place that I've seen this written. I've seen this a number of other places, this argument that this is a gender-based battle. That if this was largely men, if it was mostly men who were in the teachers' unions, well, I don't know. I don't want to jump to conclusions. I don't know if we would say that they would just give them whatever they want. I don't know if we'd go that far. But there wouldn't be nearly the angst and the hard feelings and everything else. Do you think that's true? Do you think that there is a gender component to what's going on now with teachers? That if these were not mostly women who were standing with the unions, that we would already have a settlement or the teachers would get more. The teachers, the demands against the teachers or demands for concessions or whatever else would be a lot less. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I have a very, very difficult time with this one. I have a vi- I, I cannot, I, I simply can't wrap my head around the idea. I can't get to a point where I say, you know what, this is, in, this is a female thing. I, I just can't. And I'll tell you why. Largely because it doesn't matter. It is very difficult to argue that an NDP government, which we had with Bob Ray once upon a time, is anti-female. And yet the teachers unions fought with them. 
And it would be very hard to argue that Kathleen Wynne or Dalton McGinty were anti-female, were anti-women. And yet the teachers' unions fought with them and the government fought back. So because it's Doug Ford, then suddenly it's now a female thing. It's a misogynist thing. I have a very hard time wrapping my head around that. that. I mean, look, it is true that there are more females, there are more women in this line of work. But does that then mean, the, the, the inverse of this, does that then mean that because there's more women that we must capitulate and give whatever we want, whatever they want, because there's more women or else we're somehow misogynist? I don't buy that. Dave is up first today. Dave joins us. Dave, how are you today? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing wonderfully. Thank you. What do you think about this? I don't think it has anything, any gender uh, bias whatsoever. Why? I, uh, I believe that these types of conversations have been ongoing for many, many years. Um, and, uh, you know, it doesn't matter whatever the political climate is or what parties in power. Uh, education always seems to be very topical. And, and Dave, that's uh, that's where I come from with you. I, I that's the part that I back you on this. If this was exclusively a Doug Ford issue, and we had not had any battles between education unions and governments before, I would say, okay, maybe I can wrap my head around that. But that's not the case at all. Yeah, not true. It just seems I I heard someone say a few weeks ago that whether it's education or healthcare, for that matter, both very important issues. Yes. Uh, no matter what government is in power, it's always it's always a big challenge, and the, the reason it's a big challenge is because it's a, they're both huge uh, services with huge ministries with huge costs. Exactly. Um, and the taxpayers are having a hard time, and I don't know that there's any government out there yet in the last 20 or 30 years has actually figured out the right balance between service and cost. Dave, I appreciate the call. Thank you so much. Ted joins me. Ted, how are you today? Very well, thank you. Excellent. What do you think about this? I think it's bogus because, for example, the medical industry, the majority of the graduates are coming out are women. And so does, so the government has a beef with the medical industry, such as nurses, nurse practitioners, doctors. Many, I think the teachers are just using as a last, they're running out of ammunition. They're just making an excuse. Ted, I thank you for the call. Appreciate your thoughts. Nicole joins me now. Nicole, how are you? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think about this? Um, I do believe that there is definitely a gender component to this. Okay. Um, if you look at Bill 124, which is the wage cap, um, those are, all of the professions that are listed under that wage cap are predominantly female, um, professions. And if you think about it, OPP, fires, which are male-dominated, have managed to get above what the teachers are asking for. So definitely there is a gender component to it. Nicole, I thank, go, I thank you for no. your thoughts. <laughs> Can I finish? Please, yeah, go ahead. I, did, I thought you were done. Go ahead. No, no, I just, um, I, I, I think that what it is, is the work of a nurturer that, you know, women are doing as nurses, as teachers, it's, it's seen as inherent. It's something that, you know, they do by nature. So I don't think that we put place the same value on it. And I mean, yeah, 
Well, let me ask you this. Let me jump in and ask you this then. Kathleen Wynne is a woman. Kathleen Wynne would presumably understand and not be anti-woman, yet she battled with the teachers' unions. How, why then? She did not. Dalton McGinty did. Well, but she was his education which, minister. Which was, which was before her time. And I don't know if you can really call, fairly call it a battle because that was a contract that was imposed on them. There was really no negotiation. It was, here you go, this is what you get. So I don't know how fair you can actually call that a battle. Fair enough. I have other callers, but Nicole, I do appreciate your call. Thank you for your thoughts. I appreciate it. Thank you. Let me go to Frederick. Frederick, how are you tonight? Not bad, Scott. How are you? I'm good, thanks. That's good. This is like a color of a different horse here people's trying to put forward. And uh, it's wrong. All these people go to school. They get a diploma. They're classified all the same. And QP, some of the uh, area, the people that help the handicap and that get paid differently than the regular school teachers, okay? But it's in the contract. If, if these people get 2%, the one that got 1% will get 2% as well. It's in fine print that they get it too. So I don't know where they're being disqualified, you know, wrongly. They're being all the same. And it's going to bring a lot of taxpayers' money that we got to pay these people. And to me, a lot of these women teachers always try, like I said, trying to bring something else up. But the union, to me, shouldn't even be there with these teachers. Well, we'll talk that. That'll be a Fred. That's going to be a discussion for a different day. But I think because like, that that's a, that's a whole other discussion. But look, I appreciate your call. I Thank you. Want, I, I just want to say, Scott, before I go, that all their pay should be red red circled. Thanks for the call, Fred. I do appreciate it. Thank you. Look, it, it, whether you agree or disagree, I want to bring up one other thing, which really struck me by this by this piece. And again, it's it's by Margaret Schimba. It's Teachers Are Victims of Patriarchal Attitudes. It's a very interesting piece. I would encourage you to read it. Whether you agree, whether you disagree, it's always valuable to have a different perspective. Always. Always good to hear from someone else who you may disagree with or may agree with. But one thing I want to raise out of this one. She raises the point that for every male teacher, there are approximately six female teachers, which is very interesting to me. And I'll tell you why. We are right now at a time when we are hearing that we must, in the STEM programs, the science, technology, um, what is it, science, technology, engineering, and math, that we must open up the doors because there are few, too few women in there. We must create equality. We must create opportunities so we have more women in STEM. Do they want to go in STEM? Maybe, maybe not. We don't really know that for sure, but we know there are not enough there, so we want to bring more in because we know they would add value, and I think we agree with that. They, women add value in where they are. We've been told the military is on a hiring binge to try and get more women into the military because we have to create more of an equality. Should we then... Not be, if the teachers are six women to every one man, should we not be pushing to have way more men teachers? I mean, this is a good paying job with, with great benefits and, and stability and all the rest. Should we not be saying we need to have more equity? We want more men because young male students need to have more. I'm looking at this when I saw those numbers as a secondary issue, but it certainly dawned on me that if we are pushing to equalize things across the board in all these professions, teaching may be one of those places we may want to look at. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
few days ago, a task force that was picked by the federal government to tackle modern issues around streaming and taxes and TV and all those kind of things, it came back with a rather thick report, though aren't they all, and it was called Canada's Communications Future, and in it were 97 recommendations. Now, a number of those are pretty easy to get behind, the idea that if Facebook and Google, for example, are going to operate in Canada and do business here, perhaps they should pay something for that privilege in terms of taxes, or... Uh, The CBC should stop pursuing ads on its websites for a fair fight with other media companies. Again, a pretty good point. I think most people can get behind that. Though if the panel was truly trying to address fairness in the media, they probably would have said to shut down the CBC altogether. But that's another discussion for another day. Anyway, there were other things as well. One, though, jumped off the page, and I really believe that this thing should concern every single Canadian. Just the fact that it could happen. Just the fact that people are thinking to write this down was a good idea is stunning. Namely, the licensing and regulating by the government of news websites, CHML, The Spectator, CTV, whatever, global, that they would somehow, you would have to register and have your website with news on it regulated by the government with a license. Heritage Minister Stephen Agibo told CTV's question period yesterday that content providers should have to get a license to operate and that the CRTC should, ident- and the report says that they should identify sites that are, quote, accurate, trusted, and respected. Now, he stepped back a little bit today and said, oh, no, no, we're not going to actually license news sites. Well, we'll see. Uh, Jonathan Kay writes in the National Post under the headline, the federal government's unsettling communications power grab. He joins me now. John, thanks for doing this. How are you? I'm okay. How are you doing? I can't complain. Do you, so today the heritage minister, as I say, took a bit of a step back and said, yeah, it's all a big misunderstanding about this whole thing around licensing of what news sites and everything else. Are are you buying his, um, his retreat or do you think that that's just because he has to? Well, look, I tweeted this. Uh, what I said is, if somebody says something stupid and then walks it back, I tend to be charitable and I don't get on them for backpedaling or flip-flopping or whatever metaphor you want to use. If he, re- if he genuinely realized that he said something dumb and that people are horrified by this idea, good for him. Uh, of course, the suspicion on social media is that the liberals are still considering doing this they just want everyone to stop screaming at them about what a, a really horrible idea it is. Well, what really, John, what really strikes me about this is whether or not this ever comes to be, and that's certainly a pressing question and something we should be concerned about, but there are these people on the panel who thought this was a good idea, P- people who presumably are intelligent people who think that licensing news and, and having government control over it is a good idea. And the heritage minister, until he got flack, apparently thought this was a good idea. That to me is as troubling as it actually coming into place almost, that these people naturally thought that this would be a good thing. So I think the most charitable view of why they did this is that they had in mind Spotify, Netflix, uh, Apple, uh, Amazon Prime, um, you know, all of these big 800-pound gorillas who dominate the entertainment market. And what they were really thinking of was, you know, licensing Netflix. And I think a lot of people, I don't think it's a great idea to license Netflix, but it would, to me it's not a free speech issue if Netflix has to pay more taxes or something like that. The problem is they wrote the report in this incredibly expansive way, and they defined... 
you know, media entity. I think it was like content generating entity, like this really super broad language that if you generate income, I think they use the term significant income or substantial income in a Canadian market, then you would be, you would fall under their, uh, their new regime. An example I used is I happen to, to write for an Australian-based website that probably, you know, some of its income I'm sure does come from Canada. Theoretically, I would have to go register with a government bureaucrat, which is ridiculous. Or what? So, or what? Well, well, I mean, that's, this is what Robin Urbach uh, of the Globe and Mail tweeted yesterday. Uh, she said, like, what are the, re- like, what are the penalties going to be if you don't register? Is someone going to come to your house? Which isn't that crazy, given that we're just coming off a week when Ezra Levant of The Rebel had to go appear before RCMP officers because he published a book in the days before the 2019 federal election, which, you know, I'm, no, I'm not a huge fan of Ezra, but that was like a really creepy thing that the government did with that. That was under election law, of course. Um, it wasn't under this, this new proposed scheme. But we are living in an age when people are right to suspect that progressives are thinking about trying to control what they can say in the public square and the sort of information they can receive in the public square. Well, you know what, you point out one of them. So you could, somebody could come to your house and say, you can't publish that. There's, I I believe one second option. And that is that we somehow using technology would block a site that refuses to participate in this. So if let's say Facebook says, we're not going to do this, then they say, okay, we're going to scramble Facebook at somehow. I mean, I don't know how the whole thing would work, but we're not going to let Canadians get their hands on Facebook. Well, I mean, just the the door that that would possibly open if you were willing to go down that path even to consider it is chilling. Well, and the point I made was that one of the reasons it's not as as crazy as some people might think is because, you know, the vast majority of telecoms data is is broadcast over, a, you know, a small number of companies. Is uh, You have an oligopoly in the field of, of broadband and, and those companies are already highly regulated. So there are only a few places where the government would have to apply its, its regulatory regime. And yeah, and as you say, uh, in the case of like Netflix, I think God, someone told me that there are some places in Europe where Netflix accounts for like 50% of residential download data. So the government already has choke points they can use if they, they really do want to. I'm not sure if the technology would allow them to scramble it or, or whatnot, uh, but, that, but that's a pre-existing regulatory regime they have in, in regard to cable, fiber optics, uh, and, and of course, uh, uh, cell phone usage. Um, so through that method, they could be able to control content if they wanted to. This whole thing, the whole concept behind this, not the part about trying to get Google or Facebook to pay taxes, that's a different thing, but the whole concept behind the licensing and the choosing of news organizations that are, what what were the words they used here, that were accurate, trusted, and respected. That was a quote from them. This whole thing comes with this preset, pre-built notion that the masses can't be trusted to think for themselves, doesn't it? Yeah, and and of course we've we've gone down this road right with the six hundred million dollar per year uh, media subsidy that that newspapers have been getting, uh, and of course for that you you have to pick uh, you have to pick winners and you have to pick losers. The the fear that they're leveraging because there is like a grain of truth to the fear. A lot of it is based on the fact that it is true that there was misinformation circulated about uh, the Canadian election about the U.S. election. And of course, we've we've for several years now we've been hearing about uh, Russian efforts to meddle in the American election and other elections. 
So it's not completely uh, spurious to worry about misinformation fooling Canadians. The problem is, I, I believe that it's one of these cases where the, the cure is worse than the disease. If the government jumps in and says, well, you know, there has been some misinformation out there, so we're going to jump in and we're going to start censoring editorial content, immediately you have 35 million Canadians who don't trust anything that they're seeing because they know that uh, there's somebody who's, uh, somebody in the government who's affecting what they can see and they can't see. And you diminish trust, and a lack of trust is what is behind a lot of this misinformation in the first place because a lot of, a lot of people are circulating stuff on Facebook and Twitter uh, because they don't trust their politicians. This, this is a gesture in the wrong direction because it's going to hmm. make, make, the situ- make the situation worse. And I think the response to this has shown that. People don't trust the government to do this. On the other hand, they also don't trust big corporations. I mean, people, many people also don't trust Facebook and Twitter. One thing that has changed in recent years is that it's not clear which is the bigger threat to free speech now. Uh, corporate oligopolies who control what we say on Facebook and Twitter uh, or the government. You know, 10 years ago, I think it was very clear that government was the bigger threat. I'm not sure which is the bigger threat now, which is why there were some parts to this report that I was sympathetic to until I got to the creepy language about eliminating so-called, quote, social harms, which just as soon as I read that, I was like... Well, yeah, and here's the thing, is that that may sound like a really good idea now if your party is in power. These things always seem benign when your party is in power and you believe that they will handle this appropriately and do the right thing. And then when the opposite party that you don't support gets in, it's a terrifying overreach of all power and everything else, and now it's a horrible thing. Yeah, and I tell people, I say, imagine... Stephen Harper had come out, oh. uh, you know, I don't know, seven years ago, and he said, hey, I have this amazing idea. Uh, oh, this panel that I appointed two years ago. The Star Chamber back, panel, yeah. Right. It came back, and it told me I have to censor the internet. Too bad, so sad. Uh, well, I guess I'm just going to start doing it. But like, it's for your own good. I mean, Trudeau, I mean, <laughs> he would have lost his mind. And by the way, he would have been right to do so. And I tell people who are progressives, um, you have to have a longer event horizon. Like, in, in a couple of years, Trudeau, the Liberals might not be in power. Do you want this mega agency that can censor the Internet? Do you want that in the control exactly. of you know, Jason Kenney, Peter McKay? Like, take your pick. But they're so short-sighted. Uh, I don't trust any politician to be in charge of the Internet. I, I'm with you. And here's the other thing. I, you're, you're a bright man. You know your history. Can you give me one example of a country, of a government, of, a, of an overseeing entity in the world that has taken control of the media and hasn't become more controlling of the message once they have that control? You know, I, it's a, no. I, I, I can't. In terms of control, no. But, I mean, look, I'm not an absolutist. If the government wants to give billions of dollars to, like, create movies no one's going to watch and TV shows people don't like... <laughs> And books you're going to read and magazines about, uh, you know, going to the Arctic. Or, that's fine. I mean, that, that's kind of the deal we've had. They pay money for media no one likes to watch so that we can consume the media we do like to watch. But if they're going to still give all that money to the media we don't want to watch and they're going to take away the media we like, that to me is <laughs> it's a betrayal of the deal we've been operating under for years. And there's the other thing, we only have a minute or so left here, but there's the other thing that becomes so difficult in this, and that is, again, I'm using their quote, accurate, trusted, and respected, and they would identify these websites, and I guess they'd be the ones that get their license or get to keep it. Who are the ones who make that decision? 
Who are, who are the people uh, who decide who, and, and that's the, that's to me is the frightening part as well, because if you have people in there who have political viewpoints or whatever else who are not completely objective and nobody is, then you could have a website that people really like, but doesn't support the government side of the government of the day and boom, they're gone. I guess. Next time anybody, next time anybody uses that phrase to justify the idea of the government uh, censoring the internet, remind them that Fox's news, their original slogan was fair and balanced. And the people who ran Fox News believed they were fair and balanced, even though I, I guarantee everyone on that panel that released the report last week doesn't think Fox is fair and balanced, because fair and balanced is in the eye of the beholder, as is trusted and you know, all those nice mother's milk adjectives you just used. Uh, we all have different conceptions of what's fair and reputable and balanced. Some people think the New York Times is like Pravda. Uh, other people take exactly the opposite view. You don't want the government making that kind of decision. It's really a bad idea. Jonathan Kaye from the National Post, I would encourage everyone to go read his piece. Now, understanding that, the again, the Heritage Minister has walked this back a little bit today, it is still very much worth a read. Uh, the federal government's unsettling communications power grab is at thenationalpost.com right now. Jonathan, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, joining me in the studio, as he does every Monday at this time, Don Robertson of the Dundas Real McCoys of ComChoice Realty of... So many other things in the greater Dundas area. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Uh, later this hour, we're going to be chatting about something that uh, you and the Hamilton Steelhawks team are doing this week, which is very, very fun. We'll get to that before the show is over, so stick around. E- even if you've never been to a Senior A hockey game, even if you have no interest in Senior A hockey, which I know is impossible, but even if that is you, if you say, I could not care less about the Dundas Real McCoys or the Hamilton Steelhawks, you want to stick around and hear what they're doing because I'm pretty sure this will catch your attention and this is not a paid commercial. Don paid me nothing to say this. I just think it's a really fun thing that they're doing. We'll get to that near the end of the show. Uh, Don, first of all, you watched the Super Bowl yesterday? No. Nope. Why not? We played in Brantford at 7.30. Oh, okay. A game they changed from 2 o'clock in their infinite marketing wisdom to 7.30. That does not seem all that intelligent. No, the 75 people or so seem to agree. <laughs> wow. We're Brantford Blast's biggest draw. I can't concentrate with you with that outfit on. I'll tell you, you're no Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> Holy crap. Well, I'll tell you, would you, if you were home, would you have watched the game? Yep. I always watch big games. See, I was... What a watch the halftime show for sure. <laughs> what I what I realized, and I was talking about this earlier today. What I realized about this game, and I, I mean, I've known this for a long time, but what I really realized about this game, watching it, is how much you need in sports to have either a rooting interest or a rooting against interest. It's so helpful yeah. if you really want one team to win or really want the other team to lose, because without it, it's just stuff going on on the screen. Well, I've done that with lots of sporting events, right? You're watching it and going, I'm going to watch the game, but I don't care who wins it. And I guess I probably would have voted or voted, watched for watched and hoped Kansas City won because they hadn't won in 50 years. And that's pretty weak, but it's all I got. All right. But, and so that's a, you know, that's a fair angle to take on it. But I mean, I don't think that this year, I don't think that there was anything that San Francisco did that would make you say, I hate San Francisco. And People hate the Patriots because yes. they win too much. Yeah, you can hate the Patriots, you can hate the Cowboys, you can hate pretty much every team in the NFC East. 
The yeah. Giants, the Redskins, the Eagles, the Cowboys. I mean, all of them have histories that people can hate those teams or really, really love those teams. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I just, it really is a reminder to me of when sports is good, it's because you have a really strong emotional investment in that person or that game. For some reason team. or another, the NFL have been, been able to make this the biggest party weekend in North America. Um, I know a number of our guys were saying, well, we're just going to get to the party late. You know, they played the game and took off. Uh, I guess they play on Sundays because it's traditional. I can't believe anybody in Kansas City went to work today. I've always thought, and it'll never change. I mean, look, they're, they're, it is tradition. I've always thought that Super Bowl Saturday night would be a way better idea. I mean, it cuts an out, it cuts a day of partying and spending out of your, uh, out of your time frame. But nonetheless, the idea that you can have the game that evening and people can stay up and they can party afterwards and celebrate afterwards and everything else and recover and get home. And yeah. I mean, look, they're not hurting. There's no reason why they would have to change it to Saturday. No one is saying, I'm not going to watch the game because it's Sunday night. Well, even if they played it at three, which is noon out west, right? I mean, then the party can be over at seven, six thirty-seven. Guys at least have a chance because it just seems to be the biggest beer drinking weekend. And the brewers could uh, verify that easily, I'm sure. But I'm Well, sure not just beer. Let me tell you what, I, I took some pictures today. These were online. I took pictures of these because I, I wanted to prove, I wanted to keep proof because when I put this in my column next Saturday, people are going to think that I'm making this up because it's so insane. How much do you think a popcorn was at, at the, the Super, Super Bowl, Bowl yesterday? In my in US dollars. $22. Not quite that much. $15 for a thing of popcorn. $15 for a 32 ounce soda. Oh. $15 for probably... 10 cents if. Uh, it, would, it would be 70 cents with a cup likely now. Oh, maybe. Maybe it was a souvenir cup. Okay, but even so. So under a dollar worth of product for $15 US. Uh, what do we got here? Beer, uh, 25 ounce beer. So a tall boy was $19. That's not bad value. Frozen daiquiri. I'd rather give you 19 bucks 22. for that than a pop. Well, um, how about a, uh, meat on a stick of some kind, carved beef tenderloin on a stick, $32. It's beef tenderloin. A little expensive though. Uh, and then if you wanted a snack, have you ever gone to Costco, you or your, your wife and bought, uh, do you like hummus? Do you ever eat hummus? Sue's buys it all the time. All right. Yeah. So they, you can buy these little snack t- yep. things and they're about. If you hold your third finger and your thumb in a circle, it's about that big. It's a little cup and it's a little dipping snack size thing. $6 for one of those. Like they were, so my point of saying all this, they don't want to hurry up the game and set it for three o'clock when they can have people there for an extra eight hours of spending bonkers amounts of money on stuff that. What when was they the go home. What ticket price? $6,200? Something like, uh, I can't remember the number, but yeah, it was an enormous... Like that is insane. Uh, my wife said to me yesterday, would you ever want to go? And I said, if I got a free ticket, sure. But I can think, uh, I'm not even going to go 62. Let's say it was $4,000 for a ticket. I can think of at least 500 things I would do with $4,000 before sitting in a bad seat for the Super Bowl. You could buy half the real McCoys for four <laughs> tickets. You know, own your own hockey team. 
No, but I like all the things that you could, especially when you get a much better view on TV. And it comes back to my point. If I had a, if I was a diehard of the diehard of the yeah. diehard fans who was 95 years old and I've lived all my life and my team has never won and we're finally in this thing and we think we can win, would I want to be there? Probably. But if you don't Better have- take somebody to go get your hummus though. Be all you'd be able to eat by then. But, but if you don't have a rooting interest, just to say, you know, I know the Super Bowl's on. I'm going to buy a ticket in November- Without any idea who's playing, no way, yeah, no, no way. But people do it. Of course they do. It's like, well, it's, it. Well, no, it's not like I was going to say. There's probably a lottery for some tickets, like the Masters, but the Masters it doesn't gouge you. It's the polar opposite of the Super Bowl. I looked up Masters tickets yesterday. Funny you mentioned that. You know how much a Masters ticket is? One hundred and fifteen dollars a day. Not cheap. Not not cheap. <clears throat> Very reasonable for the Masters for that level of event. Yeah, but it's the it's the it's the golf tournament of the year. And there's one, and and that's and you're comparing it to the football game of the year. Pardon me. But the, with the Masters, I mean, and, well, and it's with both. I was going to say with the Masters, you've got a massive TV deal, so you don't have to gouge people for everything because you've got more than enough money coming in off yeah, TV. And there's but no then you massive, do, there's no massive TV deal for the Super Bowl. I was going to say, but you have the same thing. What, it, what's an ad now? Seven hundred fifty million dollars? Something like that. Like it's it's not like they're hurting. And then then you got to get Bill Murray in a commercial. I saw <laughs> a photo yesterday. It's again, someone put it on social media. And here here's the ir- or ironic part. I saw this picture of this guy who was sitting in his seat asleep having a nap. I, I saw that too. And and the person said, like, most expensive nap ever. And this is the other thing. You go there, and because it's a huge party week, half the people go and get completely blasted, and they show up at the game, and they're half in the bag, and you, you don't even remember the game for the money that you've spent on that ticket. No, it's... Uh... If I'm going to a game, uh, forget drinking. I'm going to the doctor and getting some pill that makes me more alert than I've ever been in my entire life. I want the opposite of what drinking would do to me if I'm going to pay that kind of money. Well, it wouldn't be pot then from what I'm told. Probably. I don't know. I, I'm hardly an expert on any of these uh, hallucinogenic or uh, or helpful <laughs> chemical enhancements. You get the right one, you'll think you're playing. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, anyway, I just, uh, it, it was just, it's so... It was so such a good reminder to me that if you're watching, I love sports, obviously, you, you do too, but if you're watching sports and there's no rooting interest, yeah. I mean, it's why, I don't know, years ago, back in the height of tennis, when Borg and McEnroe and Connors yeah. and Nastasi, everybody had a favorite tennis player. And the one they hated. And the one they hated. And if you were a Borg guy, you hated McEnroe. And if you were a McEnroe guy, you hated Borg. But it's why breakfast at Wimbledon. And everybody hated Connors. Pretty much. It was why breakfast at Wimbledon was such must-see TV because you cared who won that thing. Yeah. Now, you got many, many... I mean, the tennis today is at such a higher level than it ever was when those yeah. guys played. And yet, 80% of the time, if Federer's not in it, or Djokovic is not in it, or a Canadian isn't in it, and it's two guys you've never heard of, the tennis could be beyond outstanding. And you're like, eh, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, I might watch women's tennis this year if Bianca ever decides to play again. Yeah, but because you have a rooting interest. Yep, that's right. Because you, if it was you, I mean, I really believe that you, not just you, the bigger you, would tune in and watch Bianca Andreescu have a horrible match where she wins six love, six love. But you would then not turn the channel if it was two women who were playing the greatest match in the history of tennis, but you didn't care about either one of them. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I'm not uh, not a connoisseur of the game. And it's the same with golf. I mean, it's why Tiger Woods drives golf coverage so much. I, I'll watch on a Sunday if he's in it. But if, for sure. And then yesterday, it was Webb Simpson and Tony Finau coming down the stretch. Now, they are two amazing golfers. Yep. They are two guys. I mean, they were making some amazing shots. I will be shocked. Now, Super Bowl Sunday, maybe the numbers will be up because people were already by their TV and were flipping around. But you put Tiger Woods in that final two instead of Finau or instead of Webb Simpson, and you tell me what the numbers are going to be. Yeah. Because you, one way or another, you either want Tiger Woods to win or you want Tiger Woods to lose because of what he's done and his background. But nobody is agnostic about Tiger Woods. No, but he's winning some over some people that uh, weren't his fans. No, but I'm saying you're either going to love him or you're going to hate him, but you you have a feeling about Tiger Woods one way or another. There's not much in between. There isn't. So anyway, it was impossible to hate the Chiefs. It was impossible to hate the 49ers. So you watch the game and you go, okay, that was fine. Let's discuss the halftime show. Let's have another beer. And on we go. And there he sits in J-Lo's outfit. You know... It is, it is snug. It's a bit frightening. It, it is snug. But it's only a bit snug, which is not good. <laughs> I, w- I was concerned for her. She was grabbing herself down there so much, I thought she was having some sort of... Uh, Easy. Well... Do you enjoy this show? Some sort of problem. <laughs> I, sh- I thought there was some sort of... <laughs> That's medic- stuff I should be saying, not you. I Be thought careful. there was some sort of medical issue because she was uh, spending so much time readjusting down there. Really? But, what were you thinking? Oh? Well, uh, you know... <laughs> I, I, I started it. I won't talk in medical terms, but uh, <laughs> she was uh, she was clearly uh, uncomfortable or needing further comfort. I don't know what it was, but the, yeah, when Michael Jackson <laughs> look when Michael Jackson was uh, gripping and grabbing and groping, people were very quick to point it out. There was no problem. So I think it's only fair. Are you talking about when he was on the stage or at home? I was thinking more on the stage of the, you know, and then you would see that, well, then it's, you know, if J, if J Lo does it, then it's fair game that way too. Anyway, let's just hope that the, uh, the actions do not get mimicked on schoolyards the world over. That's all I'm saying. The lack of a team that you love or a team that you hate, the difficulty in really getting engaged when there's not somebody there that you either are very fond of or very anti fond of. Uh, we saw the opposite of that this week in hockey with the Battle of Alberta with Calgary and Edmonton. Uh-huh. And uh, I mean, I find it hard. I know there are people who hate fighting in hockey, who just despise fighting in hockey. I find it hard to believe that anybody could have watched those games and not even the ones who are the biggest pacifists and not said, okay, that was pretty good. Even with a few fights, that was pretty good. Coach's Corner with grapes on would have been a lot of fun. That's when you missed Donald S. Cherry. The, uh, it was old-time hockey. Not since Hextall and Billy, battling Billy Smith, did you, did you, when you could regularly see the goaltenders go. And, um. Yeah, with Cam Talbot from Ancaster, Ontario. Yeah. One of the fighters. Yeah, and he may not have got the decision, but he showed up. Got called out by Smith, and away they went. And it was, listen, I've said this for years, and I get that there isn't fighting in hockey anymore. I mean, there really isn't. I mean, we went a year, or this last year or the year before, without a fight the entire regular season of playoffs. And But I will tell you this. When I used to run a minor pro team in Brantford called The Smoke, which you remember, I said at our meetings, 
You know, you never, ever see anybody stand up when somebody gets a breakaway. But if you get two heavyweights to square off at center ice, everybody in the building stands up. And that tells you all you need to know about fighting and hockey. Is it a good idea? Probably not anymore. I mean, I guess I sound like a knuckle dragger, but that's the truth. But what, uh, what you said is the truth. I, and I, like, it's funny when you say two big guys standing up at center ice. The irony is, I don't care for that stuff at all. But this was this was stuff in the heat of the game that just the game was highly emotional, and it you had these fights that percolated out of that, and then it was done and. You know, like I hated the stuff when you used to know that two guys were going to fight as soon as the puck dropped at the start of a whistle. That's just that's that just, was stage. That and was stage. It was stupid. And I and I've said for years, and you and I have talked about it on your show here. You can't get fighting out of hockey. It's the fastest game in the world, and it has body contact. There are going to be guys get pissed at the other guy, and the gloves are going to come off, whether they both want to or not. And that to me is part of the game. The stage part might have been Smith and Talbot. That's that's kind of like tapping well, the guy on the top of the skate laces and says, we're, say we're going. Maybe, except that the thing that started that was Talbot feeling he got speared or slashed by a player, and so he got mad, and then... Smith saying, I'll clean this up, come to me. But, you know, the funny part about it is that, the again, for those who hate fighting in hockey, and, and that's fine. I mean, I, I disagree with you. I agree with you in the stage stuff. I disagree otherwise with the odd fight that comes up naturally, but... The interesting thing was this is their third game in a month and the animosity from this whole thing stemmed from a guy who wouldn't fight the first time. Yep. If if Kachuk had fought the first time after delivering a bunch of big hits, none of this would have turned into what it was. And so, you know, I mean, look, it's it's a um uh, what I was going to ask you was, is there a better, some people will say Red Sox and Yankees. Is there a better rivalry in sports? Not this week. Period? Uh, this, let's say this year, this season, this, no, this calendar oh, year. Not. Is there anything right now that, that... Not that comes to mind. I mean, the old Battle of Alberta. I mean, when the Edmonton Oilers were winning Stanley Cups and Cliff Fletcher was running the Calgary Flames... You could make an argument that the best two teams in the National Hockey League were in Alberta. Yep. And those battles were epic. I mean, they had Tim Hunter, the, you know, the, and the others had Semenko, obviously Hunter with Calgary. Like, Calgary had their tough guys, Edmonton had their tough guys, and there was going to be two fights every night with no buildup. Now, and this that was, is. And a, that was with highly, <clears throat> highly, highly skilled players mostly controlling the game. Right, that right. wasn't like two just Philadelphia Flyers 1970s teams. That no. was great teams that had a few fights in every one. Well, Samanko would get 20, and, and uh, McSorley was playing defense and forward, and boy, there was a, I mean, but that was expected. This, the reason there's such a kerfuffle about this is because it's so unusual now, but the players brought it, and they said, you know what, we're, they, it, I'm sure those games were pretty intense. One of these days I'm going to get Rick Natras on here again. It's been a while since we had Rick on the show. And he was a guy who knows all about the Battle of Alberta. He took, if he gave and he took in that one. Love to know if the players in retrospect are glad they played in that kind of back in the 80s when it was absolute warfare or if they would look back and say, no, I'd prefer to play in the kind of thing that mostly we see now, which is just high skill Battle of Alberta where we're skating end to end. Well, the it's easier on the body now, for the well, most part. 
Well, my observation would be, having not been asked for it, but it would be um, a lot of those guys that played in the 80s couldn't play today. For sure. Very that, different. That's fundamentally the difference. So, like, there's a lot of people that don't have jobs in the National Hockey League because those type of jobs are not available any longer. But, but okay, assuming that they could have skated like the guys do today, would you prefer to play the incredibly fast, up and down, up and down, up and down kind of game where you have no time to think and everything is so rapidly and you're exhausted after the games because of how the skating and the mental side, or would you have preferred to play those games where you are just bashing the living snot out of everybody and at the end of the game you have ice packs because you're black and blue, but you also gave the other guys black yep. and blue welts. I'd love to know which, which, which side, which, which style most guys, in retrospect, because the guys today aren't going to say anything. No. But the old guys who now can look back on it, which way they would have preferred to have played. It would be, it would be interesting to see the comments and if you could get the honesty. Right? You know, a lot of guys, well, you know, that's the way you had, I mean, I can answer for Well, that's the way the game was played. You I had understand. to be tough. And, but if you could say, you know what? I hated every minute of that. I mean, you never knew when you're going to get your wrist broken, separated shoulder from a cheap hit. I mean, you know, if you could get the truth, the honest to God's truth, it would be a great conversation. Well, I, Rick Natras, for, for those, Rick Hamilton guy, um, Stanley Cup champion, for those who remember, there's a very famous clip of Rick from the Battles of Alberta where I believe it was Marc Messier delivers a flying elbow right into his mush. And he very, very, probably very concussed in retrospect, wobbles to the bench with his helmet askew and he can barely stand up and he's leaning on his stick. And they used to play that all the time as part of the evidence of... And probably got smelling salts and said, skip a shift and away you go. Maybe not even skip a shift. Yeah. But, and that was sort of the proof of the <laughs> hatred in the Battle of Alberta. But that, and I asked him about it one time, many, many years ago on the show, I asked him about it. And it, as I recall, he did not love talking about that moment. He remembered it, obviously, and I'm sure he's seen it a bunch of times. But he was not, a, he, it, it didn't bring warm, fuzzy feelings to talk about that particular thing. And I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. When you say that you step on the ice and you are completely aware at any time that somebody could really, really do you harm. I mean, who was, it was one of the Sutters, right? That Messier cross-checked in the mouth and when they took him to the hospital to get his teeth fixed, it was hockey tape on the stumps of his teeth. <laughs> I mean, like that, that's what we're talking about, that it was just complete mayhem. <clears throat> or the Gordy Howe story where the, he goes in and gets stitched up and the doctor stitching him up during the game, and he got up on his skates and said, "I'd stay right here because the guy that did that'll be right back." <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the way it was back in that era. Uh, Bruce Bell played for me in Brantford at the end of his career, and he was not fond of talking because that's when all sports highlights yes. had Wendell Clark running him over behind the net. For those who don't remember, Bruce Bell played defense for the St. Louis Blues, Blues, and he came behind the net, and Don Cherry used to show it all the time. He caught him, Wendell Clark caught him, shoulder to chin. Yeah. And, I mean... Hit him right into the Colonial Hockey League. (laughs) It's stunning to think, it was was considered a perfectly clean hit at the time, because Clark's shoulder was down. But today, if you delivered that hit, you're probably getting 20 games for that hit. And he he may not have got a penalty. I don't think he got a penalty on the hit. I don't. I don't remember him getting a penalty I, either. You know, Almost killed Bruce Bell. 
there was a, there's another famous one, not maybe as famous, but it was from the playoffs: Buffalo Sabers and Philadelphia Flyers. Campbell, uh, Brian Campbell for the Bruins or for the uh, Sabers caught uh, R.J. Umberger a number of years ago coming up the ice, and I remember at the time, what's his name, uh, a Rick Jennerette doing the call, the Buffalo Sabres call. And it was like the most excited thing, exciting thing ever that Umberger was down on the ice in a, basically in a frozen seizure because he'd been hit so hard in the <laughs> chin that he'd been knocked out cold. And today, again, you, you would be talking about a lengthy suspension for that kind of thing. And I, again, but that's the hockey that guys played in. And today you, I mean, you watch a game like that Calgary Edmonton thing and there's a bunch of big hits and you're going, ooh, ah, because there's, some real hits, real hits. Which, if you watch the Leafs regularly, you don't see that. You don't see much hitting in the National Hockey League at all. First of all, they're going too fast. Yes, like you can't line a guy up like you used to be able to. And and uh, if you do, and no center red line too, right? So the guys are wide open through the cent- center zone, the neutral zone. So nobody's coming through the neutral zone or across the blue line with their head down much anymore. But I mean, think Scott of, Stevens dropped Eric Lindros one night, and Scott Stevens wasn't half as big, but he hit him. I mean, I'm sure Lindros still wakes up shuddering some nights about that hit. That stuff seems to be gone out of the game. But again, it's not played that way. It anymore. was it was completely legal at that time. And imagine what that penalty would be. We've joked. I've not joked. I mean, we've talked about this before. How hockey has changed. I hear people who don't know what they're talking about, say, oh, hockey's so much dirtier now. It's like, wait a second, wait a second. The Scott Stevens would have been banned from the game by the end of his career for the number of headshots that he delivered, entirely within the rules when he played. Totally fair. But today, you would have been getting 10 and 12 and 15 game suspensions for each of those things. See, I don't think it's dirtier now, but I will tell you that I think when they took instigator and aggressor out, and some of the heavyweights were gone. I think the stick work for three or four years went up exponentially, and I think it was a dirtier game for a while. But that seems to be cleaned up because guys that are little guys that are 5'10 can play in the league now. I got so much blowback one time when I wrote something. This was a number of years ago. Uh, it was right around the time Rocket Richard died. And we were talking about it. I said, you know, like the guy was the legend in Quebec. But if he was playing modern hockey, he would never have finished his career. You, he cracked his, the, the Richard riot started because he broke his stick over the head of Hal Laco and then punched a linesman in the face. That's what got him suspended. And all he got suspended for was the rest of the playoffs. Imagine <laughs> if you tomahawk chopped your stick and broke it over an opponent's head, injuring him and then slugged an official what the suspension would be today. Yeah, you might get more in a couple of games. And this was not all that, un- I mean, that was uncommon, that was ex- excessive, but Rocket Richard had a number of yeah. things that would be considered wildly violent by today's standards. But he was godlike then. But today, in today's game, he would never, he would have been banned for life. Yeah. He would have. I mean, he would have changed his game, but the point is, you look, I, I just, the Edmonton-Calgary thing, maybe that's it. Maybe the reason that I found it so enjoyable is because it was a two and a half hour flashback to the hockey that I remember watching when I was a younger person. And that's how hockey used to look. And you go, oh, 
that's how hockey used to look. And I mean, the hockey today is great. The game is so fast. And do you know how many dads were sitting around saying, "Son, that's the way the game's supposed to be played." Well, when I was a, a kid, probably a lot, probably a lot. And I look with you. You mentioned it with the speed and with the size of the players and the athleticism and the <laughs> bodies and everything. Now you couldn't make it through a season if that's the way you played all the time. You'd have nobody left by the end of the year. You no. just couldn't. No. I mean, they were they were smaller and didn't skate as fast, and the equipment wasn't as hard, like the shells and all. If you tried to play eighty-two games the way those teams played, you would have you'd be playing your entire AHL roster by playoff time. Well, it's it's that's why the NHL's the Stanley Cup, in my opinion, is the most difficult tournament in pro sports to win. You have to win sixteen games of a war. Well, one other thing. The sec- the first game of the back-to-back in the Battle of Alberta, Connor McDavid almost got taken out with a knee. And I thought, oh boy, okay, it, they're already hating each other. If he had been kneed yeah. and having come back from an injury and Connor McDavid was down again, somebody might have died on the ice. But at the same time, I'm thinking 25 years ago, 20 years ago, just the attempt or the move towards the knee might have created a riot. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Even if you missed. if you, I mean, imagine if somebody had stuck out a knee and tried to clip Wayne Gretzky as he was skating on the ice. Somebody would have killed that guy. Yes. And was that a good thing? One or two guys may have. Or more. I mean, you may have had Bomberger and McSorley chasing you around and Semenko waiting for you to run into him. And... I can certainly see the side of things where people say, no, hockey is better now that we don't have that stuff. The flip side is, did Wayne Gretzky until late, late, late in his career ever miss a game because of injury? Yeah. And I don't think that's coincidence. Yes, he was nimble on his skates, but you knew that if you were going to hit Wayne Gretzky that you were going to be very much paying for it, not by, I have to sit out a game because the NHL suspended me for a game. You were going to. You were going to miss eight or nine because you couldn't play. Because you were eating all your meals through a straw. (laughs) And you, you know, again, is that a good thing? You would have to make a decision if it was worth it to you to try and take out the best player, but knowing there were repercussions, real physical repercussions. And. I'm not trying to play the schoolyard bully, but it certainly it changed the dynamic of how things were done on the ice. You would never, Sidney Crosby wouldn't have got hit. Connor McDavid wouldn't have got hit. Austin Matthews probably wouldn't have got hit. Yeah. The, um, one of the greatest hits ever on a superstar is by a um, late Hamiltonian. Pat Quinn on Bobby Orr. Yep. And what happened when he hit him? Everybody went after him. Yep. He knew he was going to have to defend himself, but he... uh, The big Irishman wasn't scared of much. I was, as I say, watching that game, there were parts of me that loved watching that, loved watching hockey played that way again. And on the other hand, I went, I don't know that you could do this today. Isn't that called a guilty pleasure? It's a good way to describe it. And you don't want anyone hurt, but you want to know something? I bet you, and of course, I don't have ESPN. I don't have Fox Sports. But I guarantee you that Mike Smith and um, um, Cam Talbot Talbot fighting was on every highlight reel across North America. That's not one of those ones where they go, oh, no one wants to see that. Yeah, no, you're right. 
Every highlight reel would have had that one on there. Well, I'm sitting here talking to a guy about fighting in hockey who's wearing Jennifer Lopez's <laughs> outfit from the Super Bowl <laughs> halftime. So you people, think this job isn't tough? People are going to start believing it. <laughs> You're still adjusting yourself. Let's take a break while I adjust. Back after this. Stay with us. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.